We are continuing our series through First and Second Kings. And in case you were not here with us last Sunday, we launched a new Bible engagement initiative. And our prayer books were all taken, and we just have a few more copies left of our memorized books. But you can always join us online on Facebook for daily reflections, or you can pick up a family and life discipleship guide in the foyer today. Let me also personally invite you to join us for our corporate reading of 1 Kings this coming Saturday, February 15th at 8.30 for some coffee and snacks and 9 sharp. We're going to begin, we're going to take turns reading aloud the 22 chapters in one sitting. It's going to be fun. Last time we had an amazing time together, and I know we'll have an amazing time this time reading 1 Kings. This morning, we are focusing on Rehoboam and his dividing leadership. Our scripture comes from 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 1 to 19. I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. The scripture will be on the screen behind me, 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 1 to 19. Let's read together in one voice. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days, and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He answered them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam. As the king had said, come back to me in three days. And the king answered the people harshly. Rejecting the advice given him by the elders, he followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah the Shilonite. And when all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent out Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor, but all Israel stoned him to death. 
King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. And so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 1 Kings chapter 12. We thank you for the example that we find in this two kings, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. But Lord, teach us from Rehoboam today. Teach us not to repeat the same mistakes he made. Father, I pray that you teach us to unite people and not divide people, to be reconcilers of all people, to be pacemakers in our world and in our church today. So, Father, we pray that you speak to us through your word. We have ears to listen. We have eyes to see the revelation of your word. We pray that you'd add your blessing today. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. How many people like history? A lot of hands up there. I like how Dr. Michael Haken, a church historian, he reduces the study of world history and church history to one single word, resourcement. Resourcement, the retrieval of the riches of the past to illuminate the present. First and second kings functions much like a history textbook of Israelite royalty. And some of you are thinking, boring, but when reading the Bible, you might have been tempted to skip over or skim over First and Second Kings, but we should not do that. We should dig into the Scripture. We have become so future-oriented in the present that we have lost the value for the past in the present. But this two-book volume is a God-given gift to us that can inspire us to become students of godly leadership through the lens of a God-shaped history. As an aside this morning, it is important to note that the books of the Old Testament are not ordered chronologically like the Hebrew Bible called the Tanakh. Everything is the same from Genesis to 1st and 2nd Kings, but the difference is found in the books that follow 1st and 2nd Kings. The order of the Christian Old Testament as we know it, after 1st and 2nd Kings, we find 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, and Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. But compare this with the order of the Tanakh. And we find after First and Second Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the twelve, which is all the minor prophets in one singular book, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ruth, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah together as a joint book, and finally First and Second Chronicles. Now you all are thinking, why is there such a big difference here? Well, there seems to be no doctrinal difference because all the same books are incorporated. They could be ordered perhaps more by size, the larger ones at the beginning, the smaller ones at the end. But the real difference is that the Tanakh records a completed Jewish history, leaving them waiting for a new temple. But the Christian Old Testament tells us of a continuing story through 400 years of silence into a New Testament era that begins with a new Adam in Matthew chapter 1, and his name is Jesus Christ. 
Returning to our text, it is often mistaken that Jeroboam and Rehoboam were brothers. They are not brothers. Do not be fooled by the Boam endings. 1 Kings 11.43 concludes Solomon's reign with these words, And Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. He was the son of one of Solomon's wives named Nama, an Amorite woman. As you know, Solomon married many foreign wives, and that got him into a lot of trouble. 1 Kings 11.26 informs us that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, was one of Solomon's officials, an Ephraimite from Zerada, and his mother was a widow named Zerubah. This morning, as we engage in the scripture together, I want to propose three leadership questions about the way we treat people and whether we are sowing unity or disunity. First point this morning, it's a question. Are you a slave driver? We find this in verses 3 to 5. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days, and then come back to me. And so the people went away. In many ways, this narrative is like a return to the slavery in Egypt recorded in Exodus. Rehoboam is likened to Pharaoh, and Jeroboam is likened to Moses. And the only difference is this is not a foreign affair issue between Egypt and Israel, but this is a domestic affair issue within Israel itself. And in the footsteps of his father, whose reign had a strong beginning but a weak ending, Jeroboam advocated that Rehoboam let his people go from oppression. First, as we observe the text, we see that there was harsh labor. And this taxation was not just one of money, but one of labor. The harsh labor alludes to the physical exhaustion of the Israelites. And the same word was used to describe the bricklaying and the mortar making of the Israelites in Exodus chapter 1 verse 14. Second, we see a heavy yoke, and this heavy yoke alludes to some sort of unethical treatment of the Israelites. You see, sometimes those in leadership will treat people as if they are less than human, as if they're animals and they're only good for work and not deserving of respect. The yoke of the Israelites is meant to remind us of the yoke that is placed on two oxen that plow the field in tandem. It's that yoke upon them, and they can only move in one direction at a time. Remember the Israelites groaning and crying in the fields, crying out to the Lord in Exodus 2.23. Now, it was an atrocity for Egypt to treat Israel this way during the Exodus, but it's an even bigger atrocity to see the tribe of Judah treating their brother tribes in this way. And sometimes I'm embarrassed as to how we as Christians treat other people. It's embarrassing. We have a tendency to speak so harshly to people. Many of the hurts we've experienced have come from Christians, not from non-Christians. And so we as brothers and sisters are hurting each other. Do you treat your family better or worse than your friends? Do you treat the people in your church better or worse than the people in your community? As 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12 says, we should set an example for the believers in speech and in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. We need to stop looking for what we can get from people and start looking for what we can 
give to people. And if the church is going to break that spirit of division, we need to have mutual respect. We need to uphold the dignity of every human being because each person, whether in Christ or not yet in Christ, was made in the image of God. And can you see the personhood in every person? We need to get in touch with the lives of those under our leadership. Consider walking a day in their shoes. Become acquainted with their suffering. Identify with our shared humanity. Paul, in verse 16 of his shortest epistle, he encouraged Philemon to see his slave Onesimus differently in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. Friends, the ends do not necessarily justify the means. Second point this morning, are you a servant leader? Are you a servant leader? Verses 6 to 11. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. And they replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Whenever there is a decision that needs to be made, we should turn through the pages of Scripture and we must look for a character. We must look for a scenario that can inform us in the midst of our leadership dilemma. We must ask ourselves, who in the Bible has faced what I am facing today? How does the Bible deal with the difficult personalities that I am facing today? The Bible is the authority on the topic of leadership development and conflict resolution. We see Rehoboam consult two different groups of people before making his decision. The first group is the advice of the elders. Elders may see what your friends cannot see. They have longer life experience in their favor. These elders had previously served as Solomon's advisors. Remember Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived. And it could be that some of these elders might overlap with those chief officials listed in 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. And these were his chief officials, Azariah, son of Zadok, the priest, Alihoref, and Ahijah, son of Shisha, Secretaries, Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, recorder, Benaniah, son of Jehoiada, commander-in-chief, Zadok and Abathar, the priests, Azariah, son of Nathan, in charge of the district governors, Zabad, son of Nathan, a priest and advisor to the king, Ahishar, palace administrator. And you would think that some of Solomon's wisdom must have rubbed off on these elders. After all, they had been part of Solomon's leadership team that ushered in an era of peace, an era of prosperity in all of Israel. 
Christians ought to never underestimate the wisdom that exists in those who have gone before us. There is historical information that the leader might not be privy to. I admire and I appreciate all those leaders that have gone before me in pastoring this church, and there's wisdom there. There's wisdom in those of you who have been here at this church for many years now. And now while I say this, we must also recognize that sometimes elders can be faulted for being stuck in tradition being resistant to change, feeling a sense of entitlement. So I'm not suggesting that all elders are always right, that the gray-haired are not always wise, but I'm suggesting that they could provide good counsel as more senior and seasoned leaders. In the New King James Version, Proverbs 11:4 and 24, 6, agreed that the multitude of counselors, in the multitude of counselors, there is great safety. Rehoboam did the right thing initially in seeking counsel, but what happened? He listened to the wrong voices. The elders advised Rehoboam to discover the power of servant leadership. And if you serve them and lighten their heavy load, they will serve you. And what a leader sows into the lives of those who follow is what a leader will reap from those who follow. In Mark 10, 45, it was Jesus, the perfect model of servant leadership, who said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Therefore, none of us are worthy of being served without first serving. And we must take the same posture of our Lord Jesus Christ, See Gene Wilkes, he observes the leadership problem. Head tables have replaced the towel and wash basin as symbols of leadership among God's people. Secondly, we see the advice of his peers. When we do not like the advice we hear, we go and search for others who will tell us what we want to hear. Beware of yes men and yes women. They will say anything to appease you, to gain advantage from you. Now, in regards to the advice that these young men gave Rehoboam, we see that they began with an inappropriate joke. Insecure men, in particular, of the habit of making bold claims about their bodies to demonstrate their power. And if it's not clear to you, They're comparing the size of Rehoboam's pinky finger to the size of Rehoboam's loins. Maybe it makes more sense in the Hebrew. Maybe it doesn't come across as clear in the English, but this is a dirty joke. And if this is the form of advice that you're receiving, I encourage you not to take it. In one sense, they are insulting Solomon, Rehoboam's own father. In another sense, they are stroking Rehoboam's ego rather than advising him to be a humble leader. You see, Christians must avoid this kind of filthy talk. Ephesians 5, 3 to 4 advises, but amongst you, there must be not even a hint of obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place. These young men advised that the work should not be lighter but heavier. Rehoboam should work them to submission instead of serve them into submission. And the scourge of the whip should be heightened to the scourge of the scorpion. And this is an abuse of power. Friends, do not abuse the people you are supposed to protect. Those under your leadership are there for a reason for you to protect them, not for you to abuse them. Like Pharaoh, Rehoboam, he hardened his heart. 
He did not listen to the voice of the people. He rejected the voice of the elders. He did, he, all that he did was listen to the voice of his friends. And all of this was the fulfillment of the word of the Lord given through the prophet Ahijah. Even though these things were foretold by God, Rehoboam ultimately had to make these decisions in order for them to come to pass. And in the midst of all these bad things that we see happening in life, in the midst of all these relationships, all we know is that God is still working behind the scenes. Third point this morning, are you a unity breaker? Verses 16 to 19. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent out Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor, but all Israel stoned him to death. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get in his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So Israel had been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. In news headlines last week, you might have seen the news we heard of the United Kingdom finally making their Brexit, their British exit from the European Union. Formerly a political and economic union of 28 countries, the EU is now one country short and one big country for sure. This is what happens when people are divided in vision. In the biblical account, the ten tribes formed the northern kingdom of Israel with Jeroboam as its ruler, and one tribe formed the southern kingdom of Judah, while two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, formed the southern tribes with Rehoboam as its ruler. And of these 12 tribes, we must remember that Levi was set apart, uniquely set apart to the Lord as priests and Levites to serve in his temple. From this point until the time of exile, the timeline of God's people is divided into two parallel kingdoms that simultaneously ex coexist. And Jerusalem would stay the capital in the south, and Samaria would eventually become the capital in the north. And this is where we get the term Samaritan. And all the racial tension that is bottled up in that term, all this tension existed until the time of Jesus. See, the people of God can be the most schismatic people on earth. In his rebuttal to the Pharisees who accused him of being demon-possessed in Matthew 12, 25, Jesus said, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Friends, we cannot be in the will of God, yet be divided against ourselves. We have divided ourselves because of bitterness and gossip, and anger, and slander, but we must now step up and become God's agents of reconciliation in this world. This is the ministry that God has given us. We must make no room for division to enter the church. We must protect ourselves from sowing discord. See, unity does not happen automatically. I wish it did, but it doesn't. It is a choice. While earthly kings tend to divide, there is one messianic king who unites, and his name is Jesus our Lord. In our relationships within the church, Ephesians 4, 3 to 5 says, make every effort 
to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Likewise, in our relationships, not only in, with the church, but also with the unchurch, Romans 12, 16 to 18 stresses our responsibility to live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not become conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Did you catch that? Everyone. The only way we will ever know the peace of God and experience the power of unity is through lives that reflect the life of Jesus Christ. May I remind you that division comes at a cost and is not without its casualties. In verse 18, Adoniram, the one in charge of forced labor, was sent out to implement Rehoboam's verdict on the people of Israel, but he was stoned to death. You see, our desire to reign cannot come at the price of a human life. Disunity will cause us to commit crimes and to commit violence against our own brothers and sisters. Furthermore, verse 19 reveals the long-lasting effects of division. This feud lasted from 930 B.C. with the death of Solomon until 586 B.C. with the death of King Zedekiah, a divided dynasty for 344 years. That's a long time. This unity is not a temporary guest, but a permanent resident, and it wants to linger. It wants to take root in your home. It wants to take root in your church. It wants to take root in your workplace. It wants to take root in your school. It wants to take root in your neighborhood. And it becomes that ominous cloud that follows you wherever you go. With the consecutive nature of kings coming from that Davidic family, division becomes that generational curse that is passed on from one generation to the next generation. No king of Israel, no king of Judah ever tried to reunify it again. And friends, it is time to break the cycle of division before anyone else gets hurt. As I conclude this morning, as the worship team comes and prepares, let's return to the topic of history. On the screen behind me, you will see a picture, a picture of a piece of the Berlin Wall that I, I took a photo of in Brussels, Belgium. After the collapse of Germany following World War II in 1945, Germany was divided into Western democracy and Eastern communism. In 1964, three years after the Berlin Wall was erected, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. made his inaugural visit to speak to this divided Germany. And as you can imagine, the racial tension was palpable. In light of his own advocacy for the civil rights movement in America, many have credited his visit to being the very little spark that eventually led to the reunification of East and West Germany 27 years later. And as a true minister of the gospel, his speech was really a sermon on Ephesians 2 and the tearing down of the wall of hostility. 
When interviewed while inspecting the wall for himself, Dr. King said, no man-made barrier can obliterate the fact that God's children reside on both sides. There is no east, no west, no north, no south, but one great fellowship of love throughout the whole wide world. And whenever reconciliation is taking place, men are breaking down the dividing walls of hostility, which separate them from their brothers. There, Christ continues to perform his ministry. Friends, who will address the great and small divides but us Christians? The Berlin Wall might have fallen, however, humanity has erected many new walls that continue to divide Like Dr. King, we must be a voice for those who do not have a voice, a voice that proclaims a vision for unity and not a vision for division. And as Ecclesiastes 3.3 says, there is a time to tear down, and that time, my friends, is right now. What walls have we built up, and what wall is God calling you to tear down? You see, you were not made to be a slave driver. You were not made to be a unity breaker. You were made to be a servant leader. Let's pray.